This is Art Therapy. Just a few humble discussions on art and the creative process. Its challenges, its rewards, and how it emerges in everybody, whether you're whizzing around at two in the morning with ideas or racking your brains on a boring afternoon for just one stroke of inspiration. Here, we talk about it all. Hey, it's Ted. So, what do you think about when you hear the words modern art and abstract art? Images of Jackson Pollock or Picasso might appear in your head. You might scoff a little bit. You might think about the red square in the art museum that's priced at 10 million dollarunos and ask why the heck it's so valuable. Or you might laugh when you think about the pair of glasses or the coffee cup that someone left on the ground, leaving a bunch of college kids to marvel at it and take pictures of it, analyzing it like some Van Gogh. Or you might remember watching that episode of Adam Ruins Everything, explaining why fine art is a scam. You might ask, why is this splatter of paint worth so much when my nine-year-old can draw the same exact thing? (laughs) I'm not here to convince you to start loving abstract art or even fine art there is a reason why there's so much attention surrounding this type of medium. And it's a really important world to be aware of if you want to be a successful artist. Or if you think you're lucky enough to play the gallery game. So, to introduce you to this world, let's start with a little art history lesson. Are you excited? I'm excited. (laughs) Let's go. So, pretty much up until the late 1800s, art was what you'd consider to be realistic and well-crafted. Paintings had lots of people in contraposto poses and oil-painted landscapes, from the Renaissance to the Baroque to the Rococo period to the Enlightenment and Romanticism. All these periods depicted people in places either as realistically as possible or a heightened, divine, heroic form of the figure. Paintings, especially in the Renaissance and Baroque periods, had deep religious connotations and depicted a great deal of upper class, since a painting was considered a luxurious pastime, and getting yourself painted, well, that was an incredible status symbol. Art at the time was definitely brought up to the scholars and the thinkers and the educated upper class. Then the Enlightenment era emerged, and with it came a new age of free thinking, reason, logic, and a brand new way to express yourself. Instead of art depicting heightened forms of people, many artists want to show people as realistically and unembellished as possible. Instead of hiding human flaws, we celebrated them in all of their glory. And that's what started realism. Illustrations were sketchier, human figures were more, well, humane, with, you know, rolls of fat and wrinkles and scowls and (laughs) they weren't depicted as uh, heightened forms that you might consider in the renaissance but at the same time impressionists had the same idea but the completely opposite approach they said how about instead of painting things realistically and kowtowing to the old techniques of portraiture how about we paint the exact colors we see with our reasoning minds unspoiled by our idea of what that subject should look like in reality. Now that sounds pretty confusing, but if you see an Impressionist painting, then you'll see what I mean. You see what the picture is portraying, but the details are smudgy and undefined. It would be like if you squinted your eyes and looked at your surroundings. You still would know what everything is, but the details are more of a blur. Well, this inspired the most important idea of what began abstraction 
A painting need not apply to the laws of our world. Now that idea took a while to take off, but took off it did when the age of modernism began. Some historians and authors who wrote Jansen's History of Art argued that the modernist revolution started at the turn of the 19th century, when a lot of scientists and philosophers redefined how we see the universe and ourselves. Daniels Bohr defined the electron for the first time, for instance. Einstein published his papers on relativity. And Sigmund Freud dropped his knowledge about the conscious and the hot new phrase, subconscious. And that was when people started to see this new world as a chaotic energy of particles and neurons and forces of nature. The new wave of art was fractured. Pablo Picasso, along with a few others, introduced Cubism, a fragmented, disjointed, but expressive representation of reality. The figures were skewed and stretched in every which way, as if the energies of the universe rattled the fragile human form. Realistic people and places were replaced by sloshes of color and shapes and expressions. It was no longer real. It was surreal. We had Salvador Dali's clocks, which our persistence of memory insists that clocks are rigid mechanical objects, but that illusion of reality melts like the clocks themselves. If you think about it, all surrealism and abstraction really is, is the closest possible link between your brain and the canvas. When your brain talks to your hand and brush that talks to the work of art, there's no laws of reality that get in the way. And when you use that to its fullest potential, it stays as an abstract thought. It's a lot like poetry. Very simple, distilled ideas in a short amount of words that need not apply to the laws of prose of a novel or essay. You express those ideas in a pure form, free from the laws of what's real. So many people took the cubists and the surrealists and the modernists into their art, and, well, the rest is metamodern history. But these movements, completely changed the way that we look at what is art and what is pointless scrawlings on a page. What's the difference? That question is subjective and subject to taste and popularity, which is why it's incredibly difficult for the art market to retain consistent value. It's not like the auto industry or the soda market or Apple versus Samsung. All those have functions, getting you places, quenching your thirst, and connecting you to the world. We assign value to those objects based on how much it costs to make them and how high the demand is. So how the heck do we do that with art? I mean, the demand of a product is up to taste, which is incredibly diverse and it's impossible to whittle down. As for cost, it costs a few bucks for paint and canvas and some time and skill. Those few bucks can lead to millions and millions of dollars in profit or absolutely nothing. Do you see how that can present problems when you're trying to put a price tag on art? The writer Alex Mayasi from Price Economics says it a lot better than I can. Quote, When we say artwork has value, we really value the social meaning we ascribe to it, such as contemporary attitudes about art and the favorability built up over time by its ubiquity. End quote. Have you ever heard of a little painting called Mona Lisa? Well, not a lot of people have before 1911. The painting was stolen out of the Louvre by a thief who wanted to return it to their rightful home of Italy. And this got a lot of news, and as the old saying goes, there's no such thing as bad publicity. 
So it got a lot of attention from that fiasco, and now it's one of the most famous paintings ever made. And that's another reason why many artists aren't truly appreciated until after they're dead. To put it a bit morbidly, death is interesting, and it causes some attention. It fits into the narrative of a person whose work transcended their life and into their legacy. The value of art is the value that we assign to it as a society. Do you think that Jackson Pollock's Autumn Rhythm is a work of genius and that it's a profound piece of high art? You sure can, and I agree with you. It really captures the chaos of the universe. But Jack the Dripper was plucked out of the masses of similar art, if not more complicated pieces, mainly because the world needed an artist to represent the West during the Cold War, and America picked Jackson Pollock, which is why he kept being referred to in popular myth as the cowboy painter. His work is expensive now because, well, it became well known. In many cases, it's only valuable when society deems it a part of a cultural movement. And if collectors own a piece of that movement, they own a piece of history, which they are well aware of the fact that that doesn't come cheap. As Alex Mayasi words it again, quote, collectors buy an experience and a social standing as much as an expensive product. Jackson Pollock paintings essentially serve as the admissions ticket to one of the world's wealthiest and most exclusive clubs. End quote. It's honestly kind of sad that wealthy high art collectors are intent on hoarding art behind a curtain of pretentious hidden meanings in order to maintain their power as an art aficionado at the expense of the general public. Many normal people who don't really like an artwork are simply pegged down for not understanding it. But you have to understand that this isn't the artist's fault, or even abstract art's fault. Assuming the artist is pure in the intent to express themselves, it's out of their hands once it moves to galleries and auctions and collectors and critics. Some people just want to support their love of painting, or even get accolades for their hard work and their talent. So bottom line, paint what you want to paint. I love making abstract art because of the raw, expressive nature of unleashing pure color and marks on the surface. I'm probably not going to make money from it, but it's damn fun to do. It's a relaxing, almost therapeutic exercise. Art therapy? Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. So don't feel ashamed when you seem to enjoy a splash of color on a canvas that a five-year-old can make. It's still art, and it still could match your furniture. And why do we keep art if not to enjoy it? and to let it inspire us. So, that's it for me. There's a lot of Googling and reading that went into this one, so I'll lay down a few sources and some extra reading. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I will see you in the next week. <laughs>